Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, therefore, Paul writes, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Therefore, Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Last week, my wife and I were out with our kids out at Home Depot. It was date night. So <laughs> that's how we roll in the Johnson households. And coming out of Home Depot at right around you know, 8 o'clock or so, it's dark outside. And a woman that we've never seen before comes up to us and immediately engages with our kids, kneels down, hands each of our three kids a chocolate, and looks them in the eyes and asks them, do you kids believe in Jesus? And I'm like, all right, let me stand with you. What are they going to say? <laughs> kind of curious. <laughs> and the oldest one and the youngest one immediately say yes. The middle one looks at the other two and, all right. <laughs> Goes with it. Uh, and so <laughs> it was less than convincing, but I'll take it. Um, and so this woman starts asking them, do you know if you're going to go to heaven when you die? And, and they say, say yes. And she asks, what are you looking forward to in heaven? And they have different answers that were cute to me, but might be boring to you. And then she starts telling them about how they'll get a crown on their head in heaven, but nothing is as important as worshiping Christ in heaven. And it's just a little evangelistic conversation there. And then she leaves them with chocolates and a invitation to her church, which is a church I, I know. It's a a gospel teaching church in the area. Um, the drawback from my perspective, and I don't mean this judgmentally, just from my perspective, is that they, their sermons and their music and everything is in Korean, actually, is the language. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I can say annyeonghaseyo, and, and that's about it. So, also, I'm otherwise occupied on Sunday morning, so I feel pretty clear in my conscience about, <laughs> about not going. Um, so we get in the car and, and we ask the kids, do you know what that was? And they talked about it a little while and they settled on evangelism. That was, that was, that's called evangelism, Dad. Perfect. Perfect. And I'm thankful for that woman's tenacity and her boldness. I mean, extra boldness in that she's, without even hesitating, inviting a whole family of people to a church that's not even in the language that they obviously speak. <clears throat> I'm still encouraged by that. I mean, do work for the Lord. Since I've been in in the DC area, five years now or so, uh, I've had three different people come up to evangelize me. Um, this woman in the Home Depot parking lot, when I first moved here, one of our middle school students, uh, Kim Aker, she's in her children's ministry, her son actually approached me in the giant parking lot. Uh, I don't think he recognized me and uh, <laughs> asked me if I could take a survey about what was going to happen to me when I died. And, uh, and then uh, some, a pastor from Braddock Road Baptist Church down the street from here. Many of you drive by it, came to our house doing door-to-door -door evangelism and, and shared with my family. That's five years or so, five and a half years. Three different people have shared the gospel with me uh, at random uh, out on the streets. Makes me think, I wonder, 
let me ask you this question. How many times in the last five years have you, not has somebody shared the gospel with you, but let me turn it around. How many times in the last five years have you shared the gospel with somebody else? With that kind of boldness and directness. Uh, in five years, I know oftentimes evangelism is the long game. I know we're often playing chess, not checkers. I know, you know, I might have a conversation with somebody on this day, hoping that it opens up an opportunity on the next day, and that a month from now you can invite them to this thing, and six months from now this, and you've got the plan in your mind. And I, I understand that. I appreciate that you're being intentional and you're praying for opportunities and taking your time at it, and I get that. I get that sometimes it's strategy in long term, so that's why five years is a good enough window. In five years, how many times have you shared the gospel with somebody? Or have you lost the boldness that you used to have for Christ? Have you lost the, the eagerness? When you first came to Christ, I'm sure you were an eager evangelist. And what's happened with that desire in the years since then? That's what 2 Corinthians 4 is about. It's about the desire to be bold in evangelism. It's about having the, the spiritual authority and integrity and energy and compulsion to preach the gospel with boldness. In fact, let me give you an outline this morning. Let me give you four steps to bold evangelism. Four steps to bold evangelism. It begins in verse 1 with this imperative to receive the Spirit. Your first step is to receive the Spirit. Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry. Now, you can pause there. The ministry he's talking about is not pastoral ministry. He's not saying, since I'm a pastor or an apostle or an elder. The ministry he's talking about here, quite simply, is the new covenant ministry, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referencing. It's coming after chapter 3, which is a chapter about the indwelling power of the Spirit. In fact, in chapter 3, it's described as the ministry. It's in contrast in chapter 3, verse 7, with the ministry of death, speaking of the Old Testament law. How much more in verse 8 of chapter 3 will the ministry of the Spirit bring us even more glory. And so the, the word ministry here, it's connected to chapter 3, where we in the church have a more powerful ministry than Moses had. Now, what was Moses's ministry? It's described in chapter 3. Moses was, you could call him the mediator between God and man in a, in a sense. Moses was the one who went up the mountain to God and brought the law of God back down to the people. And the scene was a terrifying scene. It's de described in a couple places in the Bible where the Israelites were gathered and, you know, millions of people huddled at the base of Mount Sinai. There was darkness that fell over them. There was wind that blew through the camp. There was tempests or these tornadoes that were blowing around. There was a trumpet blast. And the sound of the trumpet kept growing and growing and growing. It was deafening. The people began covering their ears. They began begging God that no further word be spoken to them. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. God then speaks to that, that noise and that volume and, and says, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And the people were terrified, not out of concern for the animal, but if an animal can't touch the mountain, then what, how could they approach God? And so they push Moses forward. And Moses goes up the mountain and, and receives revelation from the Lord. He comes back down from the mountain with his face glowing because of the glory that he received on the mountain. And then over time, the glory begins to fade. And then Moses puts a veil over his face. And look what it's described in 
Verse 13, Moses, of chapter 3, verse 13, Moses put a veil over his face so the son of Israel wouldn't look intently at the end of what was fading away. Moses puts a veil over his face because his glory was fading and he didn't want the Israelites to see that he had decreasing glory. The point of chapter 3 is that as a Christian, you have increasing glory. Moses' glory is faded. Your glory increases because Moses wanted to hear from the Lord and deliver from others. As a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, seals your heart, convicts you of sin, and causes you to grow in righteousness. Moses declined in glory, but you, your whole spiritual life, are growing in righteousness, growing in godliness, growing in the way you display God's glory to the world. So you don't need a veil because you have increasing glory. We often teach our kids that when you accept Christ, Jesus lives in your hearts. And I understand why we teach kids using that kind of language. And I think it's helpful for kids to begin to understand it is it does kind of make a mess of the Trinity and Trinitarian relationships here because the scripture teaches it's not Jesus who lives in your heart, but the Holy Spirit is the one who makes your dead heart alive. The Holy Spirit brings you spiritual life. Then the Holy Spirit seals your heart. Seal there meaning the guarantee that Jesus died for you. The Holy Spirit draws you to faith in him and the Holy Spirit seals you. Meaning that if Jesus gave, God gave, if the Father gave his son, and the Father and Son sent His Spirit, then certainly they're not going to forget you. Certainly they will bring you all the way to glory. You are born in, in spiritual death, and then the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual life. You were born spiritually blind, and the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual sight. And the Holy Spirit does that by, by causing your soul to be alive. And now you have insight into the Word of God, and, and you're growing in how you read the Word of God, and you have a love for Christ because His Spirit abides with you. You're part of his temple. You're built together into his body. That's what his Holy Spirit does in your life. That's why it's right to say the Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells in you and seals you and causes you to grow in glory. That's the ministry you have. Do you appreciate that you have more access to God than Moses did? Do you appreciate that you have more confidence in God than Moses did? You should have more confidence in God's goodness, more confidence in his revelation, more confidence in your redemption than Moses did. You have more access to God's glory than Moses did. Moses had to go occasionally in the tent and close the, the door and come out with a veil. Not so us. Because we have the Holy Spirit who leads us to the throne room of God. We have access to him through prayer. Our glory is not fading it's not veiled. It's unmasked. And beyond that, it's not even some ephemeral kind of glory. What we have with our relationship to God, the glory of the indwelling power of the Spirit, we have a spirit of boldness, he says. Notice what he says in verse 4. Since we have this ministry, the indwelling of the Spirit, as we received mercy, we don't lose heart. Have you received mercy from God? If you have, then you should not lose heart. Lose heart there, it's an idiom in English. It means, in, it, in English, it means losing heart. Uh, you grow, you lack the willpower to do something maybe. That's what it means to lose heart. I was going to do this, but I just lost my nerve, or I didn't have the heart to do it. 
the Greek idiom here, it's more of got moral connotations. The, the Greek word here for losing heart, the New International Greek commentary says this word means, quote, weariness and despair that lead to a slackening of effort or neglect of duty. Weariness or despair that leads to a neglect of duty. Imagine a soldier on guard. He's posted there. He doesn't have food. He doesn't have water. And he's supposed to be alert for the enemy. He's on the wall, so to speak. He doesn't want to lose heart. See how it's a moral component? He doesn't want to slack off, grow sleepy, be found unprepared. He wants to be alert. He wants to be ready for battle, ready for action. That's the, the right approach here. And that's what Paul says. I want to be alert. I want to be ready. I don't want to lose heart because I have the spirit of boldness in me. We shouldn't be timid when it comes to evangelism is the point because God has not given us a spirit of timidity. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fearful, fearlessness. Sorry, he has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and discernment. God has given you and giving you his spirit, God has given you a spirit of boldness that desires to share the gospel, that desires to speak the truth that does not desire to lose heart. We have the idiom in English, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's certainly true with evangelism. Your flesh is weak because it's, it's fallen and corrupt, but your spirit most certainly is willing because it's God's spirit who is a willing spirit, who everything is yes and yes and never no and no. A God who is eager to see his gospel made known. That's the spirit that dwells in you. So you most certainly have a spirit of boldness. It becomes merely a question of your own courage. Last night there was a NCAA basketball game, Minnesota and Alabama, I believe. And if you watched the game, you saw that Alabama's entire bench got ejected from the game. Their entire bench. And then they had a player foul out and then a player get injured. So for the last 10 minutes of the game, they were, this is NCAA, two top 25 basketball teams. We're not talking about in the ICS playground over there. We're talking about national television. Two top 25 basketball teams play the last 10 minutes of the game three against five. And the team with three players outscored the team with five players. Well, 10 players. They had their full bench. The team with three players scored more points. when They actually scored more points when they had three players than when they had five. They, they lost the game. I, it would it be a, such a better illustration if the three-player team won the game. <laughs> I, have to, I have to work with what I'm dealt here, though. They lost the game, but they outscored their opponents for the time period they had three players. Now, there's a rule in the rule book that says if you go down in players, you can forfeit the game. The referee can forfeit the game, cause you to forfeit. And this is the criteria. If the referee thinks that there's not a legitimate chance of you winning. The referee sizes it up, looks at how you're playing and says, ah, three against five, this is going to be embarrassing. Game's over and you forfeit. That's what losing heart looks like. Curling up on the court and saying, we can't do this. We're outnumbered, we're outmanned, we're outgunned. We can't keep this going. Paul says, you do not have the spirit that loses heart. You're determined not to lose heart. You're determined to be bold. It doesn't matter if you're outmanned. It doesn't matter if you're outgunned. It doesn't matter if it's the whole world against you. You will speak with boldness because that's the kind of spirit you have. Paul was determined that no opposition, 
no resistance, no rejection, no beatings, no 39 lashes, all of which will be described in 2 Corinthians 4, would keep him from preaching the good news that Jesus Christ came to give himself for sinners, that the Holy Spirit comes to draw sinners to himself and has sealed that truth in Paul's mind and in Paul's heart and even here in Paul's lips. He will speak with boldness. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Draw your eyes up there. Well, in verse 11, because Moses' glory was fading, our glory is not fading. And look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Because you have the spirit of boldness, then you should speak with boldness. Then you should speak about Christ. Not boldness about politics, not boldness about movies or sports, but boldness about the crucified and resurrected Savior. So Paul will preach the law like Moses. He will preach the gospel like Christ because he has the spirit of Christ in him. First step to bold evangelism is to receive the spirit. Second step, renounce shame. Renounce shame. That's what he moves on to in verse 2. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. That phrase, renounced, it means not just to repent, but to disown, to disavow. Repenting is to turn around. Paul says, I'm repenting from this, but I'm not just repenting. I'm renouncing it. I'm disavowing it. He's not talking about his conversion here. This is something after his conversion. He's renouncing what? The things hidden because of shame. So that's this image that there's some items that he's talking about that are covered up like with a blanket because you're ashamed of them. You've hidden them away because you're ashamed of them. You don't want other people to see them because you're ashamed of them. Paul says, I renounce that. I'm not playing that game anymore. What's he talking about? What's he covering up because of shame? Not walking in craftiness. That's a a word for intellectual cunning, for for trying to, to game people, for figuring out what they want and giving them that. It's almost like politicizing something. You're good at politics and you figure out what somebody wants and you can give it to them. Paul says, I'm renouncing that. He calls it translated craftiness here. I'm renouncing that. And then finally, adulterating the word of God. In English, adulterating has a connotation of adultery, but that's not what the word is from in in the Greek here. Adulterating, it's actually the word, this is fascinating to me, it's the word for diluting wine. They would have wine that was powerful and strong, and what a, a, a vendor could do is add water to it, and that would dilute it and make it go further, so to speak. Now, water is not bad, but it is bad when you're diluting wine with it. That's the idea here. So the image, the full image here, to get your mind around this, is that there are parts of the message of Christ. There are parts of the gospel message that are shameful. And what he means by that is not that they're actually shameful, but people in the world are offended by them. People in the world have disdain for them. And so there's this temptation in your heart to cover up those components of the gospel, to put a blanket over them, to to smooth out the rough edges, so to speak. And that way, you're diluting the gospel message to make it easier for people to drink. That's the image. And Paul says, I will not do that. I renounce that. I renounce it. The desire to change the message, to draw people in, Paul says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not going to alter the message so that more people believe. The temptation is always there, isn't it? In every generation, you know, you say, Well, people today, people in the world today, these people, these kids today, they won't believe the gospel because of X, Y, or Z. And so let's just change X, Y, or Z so that the gospel draws more people. 
There's a word for that. Adulterating is the word. Adulterating the word of God. Craftiness, it's called. Covering up shameful things. And Paul says, I, have no, I renounce it. I want nothing to do with it. Remember, the Gentiles wouldn't believe in the gospel because they didn't know this Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's not one of their gods. And Yahweh has so many character flaws, the Gentiles would say. So many character flaws. A jealous God, an angry God, a creating God. Their gods, the Roman gods, are nothing like that. And so the Gentiles wouldn't deal with the gospel because they rejected Yahweh. And Paul says, I'm not going to soften Yahweh's rough edges to make him more acceptable to the Gentile population. The Jews wouldn't believe the gospel because Jesus didn't meet their level of, of kosherness. <laughs> Jesus did too many things that were not acceptable to the Jewish leaders. And the whole thing reminds me of Luke chapter 7, where Jesus asked the crowd, he says, Look, listen, Pharisees, you wouldn't follow John the Baptist because he didn't eat the food you eat and he wouldn't drink the wine you drink. And so you rejected him. And now you're rejecting me, Jesus, because you're saying he hangs out with sinners and gluttons and drunkards. Well, which way do you want to argue this? Do you reject the gospel because the people who bring it drink wine? Or do you reject the gospel because the people who bring it don't drink wine? You can't argue it both ways. And Paul says, I'm not even going to play this game. I'm not going to start down this road. Because this road doesn't go anywhere. Once you start changing the message to appeal to people, does it even ever work? It doesn't work. Our world doesn't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And so do you make Jesus one way to God? Hey, there's lots of ways to God. Jesus is just one of those ways. Just one way. I think he's better than your ways, but lots of ways work. And let me tell you about my way. That's not going to be effective in reaching lost people. Our world has no toleration for the sexual ethic of Christians. So do you cover that up, put a sheet over it? Are you bold when you declare that any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful? What are you going to, I mean, if you cover it up, it's not going to be more attractive. There's a story in the news this week about the Church of Sweden that has told its ministers to no longer refer to God with male pronouns. Now, I don't know if the story is true or not. It was all over the news and it was on all kinds of reputable news sources. That being said, uh, there's nothing news sources like to do more than lie about churches and lie about Christians and lie about doctrine, of course. And so it'd be very easy for me to believe that this story is made up and false. I don't know. I'm not from Sweden. No idea. The original source is probably in Swedish, which I can't read, just like my Korean. Not good. <laughs> Lotov. That's Hebrew. But let's pretend it's true for a second. Let's pretend the church does tell the pastors, don't refer to God as he anymore because it's offensive to people in the world. It's this whole kind of patriarchal system that God is a father and he has a son and he, the father kills the son to bear sins. I mean, that's the patriarchy right there. We want nothing to do with that. Refer to God as he or she or some gender neutral Holy Spirit kind of language and go with that. So let's pretend that actually happened. Would the church suddenly grow? Of course not. You gain nobody from that. It's uh, the people that are bothered by the patriarchy and are bothered by gender-specific language are not sitting at home on Sunday mornings watching football and then hearing a story. There's a church down the street that no longer calls God he. Well, come on, honey. Let's go. <laughs> of course not. When you start accommodating the culture in the way you present the gospel, it's like the on-ramp that never connects to the freeway. 
you just keep going and going and going and going and you don't go anywhere. I've been on a few commercial airplane flights that have aborted their takeoff. And they go and they ramp up and they're going fast and then, you know, they don't, the ones I've been on, I'm sure every aborted takeoff is different, but the ones I've been on, they, never, they don't hit the brakes. They just run it out down the end of the runway and turn off on the last exit down there. And it feels like it's forever, especially at LAX. That runway is huge and you, you're going fast and then you're just going the same speed and then you're just on the ground and you're on the ground and you're on the ground and you flying there or driving there? What's happening? <laughs> That's what it's like when you start changing the gospel message to draw people into the church. You'll never take off. The on-ramp never connects. And Paul says, I'm not even going to play this game. I renounce the whole thing. It's just shenanigans. And Paul says, I want nothing to do with it. Instead, look at the end of verse 2. I'm commending the manifestation of truth and I'm commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Kind of a confusing phrase there, but to break it down, he basically says, I'm going to commend my gospel message to anyone. Every single human being, I'll bring the same gospel message before them. Male, female, rich, poor, slave, slave owner, politically powerful, homeless beggar on the street, Jew, Gentile. Paul says, I don't care. I'm going to bring the same message to every single one of those people. I commend this message to all of them. All of them. That is bold evangelism. Where you say, I don't need to tinker with this. People get so sidetracked, although I need a starting point, something in common with the person to share the gospel with them. Yeah, you're both made in the image of God and you're both sinners. That's your starting point. You don't have the ability to change the gospel message. You didn't write this. You're the courier of it, not the author. You're the paper boy. Do you remember what a paper boy was or paper boy or girl, whoever he or she may be? You just throw in the newspaper. You're not publishing the newspaper. You're, the, you're not the chef at the restaurant. You're not making the dish. You're the waiter. You're bringing it. And so Paul says, I'm going to bring you the unadulterated truth and I'm going to bring everybody the same food. That's bold evangelism. Third step to bold evangelism. Receive the Spirit. Renounce shame. Thirdly, respect sovereignty. Respect sovereignty. <coughs> he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is the image back from chapter 3. In chapter 3, Moses had the veil over his face to, to block the decreasing glory. Now notice that the glory is moved around. It's the same veil imagery, but now it's the non-believer with the veil over his face. The glory is on the outside of the veil. In chapter 3, the glory was inside and declining. In chapter 4, the glory is outside and increasing. Nevertheless, the veil remains. The veil remains. And that's why chapter 3, verse 15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Now he says in chapter three, I'm mean chapter four, that non-believers still have the veil over their heart. It's not just non-believing Jews because of Moses' law, non-believing Gentiles too. Every non-believer has a veiled face when it comes to God's glory. Now, whose fault is it that they do not see then believe the gospel? Is it your fault for how you explain the gospel? No. It's their fault because they have a veil over their face. It's not the fault of the sunset that the person watching it doesn't appreciate its beauty when the person watching it has a veil tied around their face. If a person is blind, 
changing the, the wattage in the light bulb is not going to help them see. So the image here is Paul saying, I'm going to bring the same gospel to everyone. I've got the Holy Spirit in me. I've got the spirit of boldness. I'm going to preach it to every man, woman, and child. The same message there. And you picture somebody tapping on my shoulder and saying, well, Paul, if that's true, why doesn't everybody believe? And he says the side note here. If they don't believe, it's because they're perishing. I'll tell you who doesn't believe. The people who are perishing. That's who doesn't believe. In other words, of course they don't believe because they're spiritually dead. They have a blindfold over their face. That's why they can't see it. That's why they don't appreciate his message because they're veiled. In in whose case, he says in verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they wouldn't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The problem is not the glorious gospel that's blazing with its light. The problem is that they're veiled and they're doubly blind here. They're blind from their own sin. They're born in the likeness of Adam, born into sin, running from God. And now they have a second veil put over their face. This time it's tied on by the devil. They love their sin. That's problem one. Problem two is the devil confirms them in their blindness by making sure that veil is on nice and tight. So now they can't see. Now they can't see. This is, of course, happening under the sovereignty of God. They're blind. You could say in the first sense they're blind because they're free will, willfully sinning. In the second sense they're blind because the devil confirms them in it. But Paul has in this the image of the gospel of the glory of Christ who of course can remove a veil. That's how chapter 3 ends. Chapter 3 ends in verse 16. When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away because where the Lord is, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. We have an unveiled face. In other words, the Holy Spirit can take the veil off. The devil puts it on, the Holy Spirit can take it off. I mean, who's going to win that fight? God or the devil? Obviously God. So God is sovereign over this. Nevertheless, they are veiled because of their sin and they're veiled because of the devil. So why doesn't everybody believe? Because they are working for the devil. That's why they don't believe. And it's not your job to fix that. You cannot take their veil off. You don't have that power. But God can take their veil off. He can do it. It's just that you can't. So don't fret over your message being rejected. It's not your job to be accepted. It's your job to bring the pure message. And don't think that if you change the message, that would somehow penetrate the veil. The problem is not the message. The problem in the parable of the sower and the seed, it's not the seed. It's the soil. That's the same image here. It's the veil. Of course, the gospel can break through the devil's grasp. Of course, the gospel can break through the veil the devil has placed on the person's face if the Holy Spirit does it. Ultimately, though, the person being blinded by the devil is not determinative. Their sin is not determinative. It's the sovereignty of God. And I've had people ask, listen, if you believe that the gospel is supernatural, if you believe the Holy Spirit can cause dead people to live and blind people to see, if you believe that, why do you evangelize? I'm sure you've heard that same objection. If you think that it takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to give somebody life, why do you bother evangelizing? If you think the Spirit blows wherever he wants to, and you can't direct it, why do you evangelize if it's not up to you? And I say, flip that question around. I'll tell you why I evangelize. If I didn't believe the Holy Spirit gave life, why would I evangelize? If you've got a dead body on the ground and I don't believe in the Holy Spirit's power to make it alive, why would I give the body Tylenol? I mean, what am I doing here? I'm spinning my wheels if God doesn't give spiritual life. But the reason you can be bold in evangelism is because God does give spiritual life. 
He does take the veil off of people's eyes. He does say, Lazarus, come out. Mary and Martha can shed all the tears they want to outside the grave unless the voice of the Lord tells Lazarus, come out. Lazarus isn't going to move. But we believe in a God who causes the light to shine into the darkness, as he says in verse 6. We believe in the God who causes the dead to live. That should make you a bold evangelist, knowing that even those that don't believe, they don't believe because their face is blinded. It's not your problem. Don't change the message. Be clear and let the Lord do the rest. This this phrase, I wish you had more time on this phrase at the end of verse 4. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. Again, it's a wordplay from chapter 3 where Moses saw the glory of the Lord. We have the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, verse 4 says. You want a verse about the deity of Christ? Right here. The image of God. All of the glories of God. The image here, it's not just the idea of her picture. It's all of his glories, all of his perfections, all of his attributes take on human flesh in the Messiah. That's the gospel we're preaching The glory of the created God, creator God, the glory of the God who created the universe, who says the light shine out of darkness, that glory took on flesh and died on the cross and rose from the grave, the image of God. That's the gospel we preach. Fourthly, you have bold evangelism when you receive the Spirit, when you renounce shame, when you respect sovereignty, and fourthly, when you relish slavery. When you relish slavery. What I mean by that is you delight in your role as a slave. You delight in your role as a slave. This is what he says in verse 5. We do not preach ourselves. Woe to the pastor or the evangelist who tries to make his own disciples. <laughs> You're not winning people to you. You're not winning people to, the, to even the church with your name on it. You win people to Christ. And then we all work for him. And that's what he means here. We don't preach ourselves. Instead, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, pause here. Lord is the word kurios, a kurios by definition, it has a doulos. A kurios has sl- a lord has slaves. Just like a mayor has a city, a king has subjects, an employer has employees, a kurios has doulos. A lord has slaves. And so there's kind of this tension at this point in the sentence, who are his slaves? If Christ Jesus is lord, who are his slaves? Well, obviously we are here. But notice that Paul begins to saying bold evangelism requires you to preach Christ as lord. And there are some that disagree, that some that think that identifying Christ as Lord is, 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 is a distraction to evangelism. But it's not so. This is the foundation of evangelism, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you proclaim that Christ is Lord, think about what you're proclaiming. You're proclaiming that he's the long-expected Messiah who's identified as the Lord in Psalm 110. You're proclaiming the deity of Christ who is the Lord in human flesh from Philippians 2. You're declaring that the Lord's absolute rights over every human soul, described in Romans 10. The triumph of Christ over death because he's the Lord of life. That's Ephesians 1. The basis of Christian teaching becomes the lordship of Christ. Everyone is accountable to the Lord who is the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4. You have to make a personal and public declaration that Christ is Lord to be saved. That's Romans 10 verse 9. You repudiate your former allegiance to any so-called pagan lords by reaffirming your loyalty to the one Lord through whom everything else exists. That's 1 Corinthians 8. So when you preach Christ as Lord, you're taking everything captive underneath that. That's why it's the starting point of evangelism that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
and we then are his slaves. He bought us, he purchased us. That's the phrase at the end of verse 5. We are your bond servants. That's the word slaves. But there's a pronoun switch here, isn't there? This is unexpected. This is one of those surprising verses in the Bible. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, but we're your slaves. He's talking about evangelism here. How are you the slaves of the non-believers you're talking to? It doesn't make sense. You're this, Jesus is the Lord, but you're working for that? Huh? Many years ago in a previous life, I worked for a landscaping company. And we had this soccer team that wanted to do a fundraiser. And so we got one of our commercial clients, it was this big office park, had like six office buildings in it, uh, to pay us, the landscaping company, to take out all their leaves on a Saturday and they knew that we were going to use this high school soccer team to do it. Like 40 high school soccer players, varsity and JV, show up at the crack of dawn on Saturday and they're going to clean up all the leaves from this commercial property and they're going to make the money for it way better than a car wash, by the way. Despise those car washes. We show up there Saturday morning though and lo and behold, there's no leaves anywhere. Apparently the day before, the company grew skeptical of high school students' ability to clean up the property and hired a different company to do it. But we still got paid. We got our money. But now I just had an army of high school kids and nothing to do with them. I'm not going to turn them free on society. Jeez. So I send them out. And they start going door by door to all these businesses, knocking on the doors, asking, can I clean up the leaves from your parking lot? Can I clean out the arroyo behind your office space? Can I clean up all this and that. And they had to convince the owner, I don't want money for this. I'm, I'm not doing it for money. Somebody else has already paid for us. I just need to stay busy. I just need to do the work here. I think that's what Paul's going for in chapter 4, verse 5 here, that we are slaves of Jesus who's lent us out to non-believers for Jesus' sake. Jesus purchased us. We belong to him. And now he's sending us out to work for these non-believers. Now, what are we doing by working for them? Well, we're bringing them the gospel, of course. That's what we're doing. This is what our owner, our master, has told us to do. And you see how that makes you bold when you're doing it? Because you don't ultimately even answer to the person you're working for. There's a greater authority above them. If they don't like the way you're working, they can throw you back out and you're going back to your real master anyway. This is the image for evangelism. You don't want money from the person. You're not in it for your, own, for your own gain. Your conscience will bear that witness. You're in it only for them. You don't want anything from them under, other than for Christ to be glorified in their life. And it's all done, it says, last phrase in verse 5, for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. For his benefit. Not your own, but for the benefit of Christ. I pray that you would be a bold evangelist because you would understand. You would be bold because you're bold from the position as a slave with a merciful master. You're bold from the position that God is sovereign over the whole business of evangelism. You're bold from the position that you are not going to dilute your message. You're going to speak clearly and powerfully about it. And you're bold from the position that you have the spirit of boldness who dwells in you. Taking all that together, God has been so kind to you to rescue you and show you his saving mercy and then turn you loose on a world that doesn't even see you coming. <laughs> Lord, we're thankful that you are a, a bold God. You're bold in sending your son. Your son was bold in coming to earth. Your son didn't hide. He didn't obscure his message. But he spoke it boldly and powerfully. Your spirit was bold in coming and saving us and changing us and giving us a spirit of boldness. So Lord, send us this week into the world to do your work. We want to be bold 
emissaries for you. I pray for anyone here this morning that has never given you their life. I pray this morning they would receive your spirit. They would trust you for dying on the cross for their sins. Delight that you rose from the grave so that they might live with you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.